Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 10th edition of Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our crime report. A major U.S. hospital chain, Tenet Healthcare, and two of its subsidiaries will pay over $513 million to resolve criminal charges and civil claims related to its defrauding the United States and paying kickbacks in exchange for patient referrals. In addition, two Tenet subsidiaries have agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to defraud the United States and to pay healthcare kickbacks and bribes in violation of the anti-kickback statute. The plea agreements remain subject to acceptance by the court. The two tenant subsidiaries have agreed to plead guilty to the charges alleged in the criminal information and will forfeit over $145 million to the United States, which represents the amount paid to them for services provided to patients. And remarkably, this is not their first offense. The criminal information also charges the subsidiaries, while at the time being under the oversight of a prior September 2006 corporate integrity agreement. The criminal information further alleges that certain executives and others concealed these unlawful payments during the pendency of this corporate integrity agreement by falsely certifying compliance and failing to disclose reportable events. Under terms of the non-prosecution agreement, the companies will avoid prosecution if they cooperate with the government's ongoing investigation and enhance their compliance and ethics program and internal controls. Tenet has also agreed to retain an independent compliance monitor to address and reduce the risks of any reoccurrence of violations of the anti-kickback statute. In the civil settlement, Tenet agreed to pay $368 million to the federal government, the state of Georgia, and the state of South Carolina. The federal share of the criminal settlement is of the civil settlement is over $244 million. The state of Georgia will recover over $122 million, and the state of South Carolina will recover over $892,000. The whistleblower's share of the combined civil settlement amount is about $84 million. The kickbacks and bribes allegedly helped Tenet obtain more than $145 million in Medicaid and Medicare funds based on the resulting patient referrals. A labor contractor who cheated a workers' compensation insurer out of millions of dollars in premiums has been sentenced to nine months in jail. 63-year-old Michael Harold Krager of Visalia, he was the owner of Michael Krager Contracting, was sentenced after his conviction on three felony counts of insurance fraud with a white-collar crime enhancement for cheating his workers' compensation insurer out of more than $5.4 million in premiums. Following up on a referral from Krager's workers' compensation insurer, detectives from the California Department of Insurance launched an investigation into Krager's business practices. The investigation included an audit of Krager's payroll records provided to his insurer and what he provided to the Employment Development Department. 
It revealed that for over four years, Krager intentionally underreported his payroll in order to mislead his workers' compensation insurer and obtain artificially low workers' compensation insurance premiums. Krager pleaded no contest to the three felony counts of insurance fraud with a white-collar crime enhancement. He was released on house arrest and electronic monitoring after two days in jail. And in regulatory news, current law authorizes workers' compensation insurance policies to be either standard, guaranteed premium policies, or deductible policies. And it requires insurers to file workers' compensation insurance policies and endorsements with the WCIRB. The WCIRB is the insurance commissioner's designated statistical agent for workers' compensation purposes. There are a range of functions that the WCIRB performs on behalf of and with the approval of the insurance commissioner. Insurers are prohibited from the use of the policy or endorsement until 30 days have passed or the commissioner has approved the filing. It is unlawful for an insurer to use an ancillary agreement if the commissioner notifies the insurer that the agreement does not comply with the law. AB 1922 was introduced this legislative session to modify these requirements. It attempted to establish exceptions from workers' compensation insurance policy filing requirements for large employers that purchase high-deductible policies. It was supported by the American Insurance Association, the California Chamber of Commerce, Liberty Mutual Insurance, and the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. It was opposed by the California Department of Insurance. It, however, was approved by both houses of the legislature and sent to Governor Brown for signature, and he vetoed the proposed law. In his veto message, he said he was supportive of efforts to increase the ability of insurance carriers to effectively conduct their businesses, but this bill reverses Department of Insurance regulations that have been in effect less than six months. These regulations are designed to promote consumer protection and transparency. The governor wants to allow time for them to work. And the insurance commissioner was appreciative of his veto. He opposed the bill because it would have created a loophole enabling workers' compensation insurers to limit or avoid prior review of terms and conditions imposed on businesses. The commissioner said AB 1922 undercut the Department of Insurance's ability to protect businesses from becoming victimized by some workers' compensation insurer contracts, and it would have resulted in more litigation between businesses and insurers. Recent cases highlighted problems when the California Department of Insurance lacks oversight. Last month, two Berkshire Hathaway companies agreed to stop selling certain workers' compensation policies with provisions not filed with the California Department of Insurance. The policies had serious and unexpected negative consequences for many California employers, including cancellation penalties of $1 million, non-renewal penalties, provisions shifting most, if not all, of the risk back to the employer and provisions requiring any disputes with the insurer to be resolved in the British Virgin Islands under Nebraska law. These unfiled policies were successfully challenged by Shasta Linen, a small business in Sacramento. 
A range of business groups joined the insurance commissioner in opposing the bill, including the California Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the California Small Business Association, the Asian Business Association, and the Sacramento Rainbow Chamber of Commerce. Governor Brown signed SB 1160 into law on the last day of the legislative session. This bill makes a series of significant, wide-ranging changes to the operation of the utilization review processes. This bill expedites medical care at the beginning of an injured worker's claim, modernizes data collection in the workers' compensation system, and implements anti-fraud measures in the filing and collection of liens. With respect to medical treatment that is provided through a medical provider network, a healthcare organization, or other employer-directed provider, or a pre-designated physician, no prospective UR may be undertaken for the first 30 days of treatment. But there are several exceptions to the no UR rule, including surgery, medications not covered by the formulary, psychological treatment, non-X-ray imaging, durable medical equipment if total cost for all DME exceeds $250, and home health care services. An employer may conduct retrospective UR to ensure compliance with evidence-based medicine standards. And if a pattern of non-compliance is discovered, the no UR rule could be revoked or the provider removed from the MPN. Any UR organization must soon be accredited by an entity specified by the DWC, subject to exceptions for certain public entities that have internal systems approved by the DWC. The administrative director is required to develop a mandatory electronic system for sharing documents necessary to conduct utilization review. And... The DWCA must adopt new procedures designed to better facilitate delivery of information for purposes of IMR. It must also establish an expedited five-day time frame for IMR decisions related to medications on the formulary. <clears throat> with respect to anti-fraud measures, in the event a lien filer is charged with workers' compensation fraud, Medi-Cal fraud, or Medicare fraud, all liens are stayed pending resolution of the charges. Governor Brown also signed Companion Bill AB 2503 into law. The new law will require a physician providing treatment to an injured worker to send any request for authorization for medical treatment to the claims administrator for the employer, insurer, or other entity according to rules adopted by the administrative director. This new law would incorporate changes to Section 4610 of the Labor Code provided by this bill and the companion sweeping overhaul to the UR processes specified in SB 1160, which has also been signed by the governor. They were, in effect, companion bills. The bill author says it is often difficult for health care providers and the workers' compensation system to obtain timely approval for treatment of injured workers because it is difficult to know where to send the RFA. Whether it is intentionally complex or bureaucratically inefficient, physicians report that upon sending RFAs to what appears to be the correct recipient, they are frequently advised that the RFA and attendant medical materials must be sent elsewhere. <clears throat> 
Further, the timeframes within which responses from the UR entity must be provided do not begin to run until the RFA is sent to the correct location. This bill is intended to clarify where the RFA and related materials must be sent so that the timeframes specified in the statute will be more effective. There is silence in existing law on where a physician should send a request for authorization, which is creating difficulty for healthcare providers and is creating delays in the provision of medical treatment. Specifically, AB 2503 would require that a request for authorization be submitted directly to a claims administrator rather than a UR vendor or some other third party. In doing so, AB 2503 will make precisely clear where an RFA should be submitted so that a request for medical treatment can be timely assessed, avoiding unnecessary delays. The sponsor of this bill was the California Orthopedic Association. The association says that different employers have different policies for where an RFA should be submitted, which can lead to confusion for physicians. There was no opposition to this law noted in the legislative record. Governor Brown vetoed SB 897. The proposed law would have extended an additional year of injury leave for city police officers, city, county, or district firefighters and sheriffs. Proponents of the bill said that California's firefighters, police officers, and sheriffs face significant risks on the job, including a higher likelihood of injury. Proponents wanted to ensure that a peace officer facing those risks would not face financial devastation, and that AB 897 continues this tradition by granting California firefighters, police officers, and sheriffs an additional year of leave in order to return to active duty after a catastrophic injury. Opponents said that under current law, police officers, sheriffs, and firefighters have access to a year of paid leave under Labor Code Section 4850 as well as a year of two-thirds wage replacement through TD benefits, both of which are tax-free benefits. They argue that requiring additional disability benefits will require cities and counties to remove funding from existing services. In Governor Brown's veto message, he said this bill doubles from one to two years special leave benefits. This leave is required to be provided at full salary and tax-free, resulting in take-home pay that is higher than pre-injury wages. When the governor vetoed a similar bill last year, it was because this disability leave benefit drives up costs significantly. Many local agencies are under significant financial stress. In light of all of this, the governor believes the decision on how to handle cases such as this is best left to the local jurisdiction. Governor Brown also vetoed Assembly Bill 1643. This bill would have prohibited apportionment in cases of physical injury based on pregnancy, menopause, osteoporosis, and carpal tunnel syndrome and requires that breast cancer not be less than the comparable impairment rating for prostate cancer. The sponsor of this bill, the California Applicants Attorneys Association, argued that AB 1643 would eliminate gender bias from apportionment when determining permanent disability ratings. 
Ka cites several cases where apportionment is purported to have occurred due to risk factors and immutable characteristics rather than proven conditions. Ka also notes that AB 1643 would make breast cancer eligible for the same disability rating as prostate cancer. And finally, Ka argued that the workers' compensation system treats being a woman as a pre-existing condition and that AB 1643 will ensure that women receive the level of permanent disability they deserve. In his veto message, the governor said he was vetoing this bill for many of the same reasons that he returned a similar measure, AB 305, last year. He said that this bill is poorly drafted and reflects a seriously flawed understanding of both the workers' compensation system and the nature of physical disabilities that may result from a work-related injury. Current law, however, already prohibits apportionment to risk factors including gender, age, and family history. There is ample opportunity within the workers' compensation adjudication process for workers, their counsel, and others to raise any concern or allegations of improper or impermissible gender discrimination in the medical evaluation or apportionment process. The governor therefore urged proponents of this bill to support efforts to educate medical evaluators on current laws prohibiting bias. An article on the ProPublica publication and NPR website proudly announced that a race to the bottom in states' workers' compensation laws has the Labor Department calling for exploration of federal oversight and federal minimum benefits. This announcement is the culmination of many ProPublica NPR stories that featured injured workers who lost their homes, were denied surgeries, or were even denied prosthetic devices recommended by their doctors. The ProPublica NPR series prompted a letter last fall from 10 prominent Democratic lawmakers who urged Labor Department action to protect injured workers. The 10 ranking Democrats claimed there was a pattern of detrimental changes in state workers' compensation laws that have reduced protections and benefits for injured workers over the past decade. The response to this letter was a report from the Labor Department that calls for exploration of the establishment of an increased federal oversight if workers' compensation programs fail to meet federal standards. The report claims that changes in many state systems have resulted in the denial of claims that were previously compensated. A decrease in the adequacy of cash benefits to those awarded compensation imposition of restrictions regarding the medical care provided to injured workers, and the institution of new procedural and evidentiary rules that create barriers for injured workers who file claims. The federal agency also suggested a fresh look at reestablishing a 1972 Nixon Administration Commission that recommended minimum benefits and urged Congress to act if states fail to comply. To clearly understand the implications of this recommendation, it's important to know the history of the financial waste triggered by the Nixon Commission report after it was published in 1972. In essence, the report was critical of just about every aspect of the various state workers' compensation systems and recommended improvements or enhancements to every species of benefits. 
If states did not improve their programs in conformity to these recommendations, there was then a threat of a federal takeover of all state systems. For example, the Nixon Commission concluded in 1972 that many disabled workers failed to receive vocational services. Thus, the report went on to recommend that the Medical Rehabilitation Division within each state's workers' compensation agency be given the specific responsibility of assuring that every worker be offered those services. A few years later, California, as well as many other states, appeased the federal government by adopting some of the Nixon Commission mandates. For example, California adopted mandatory vocational rehabilitation. Remember that? The history of that financial disaster is well documented. Rehabilitation programs easily cost more than $100,000 per claim and rarely produced a return-to-work outcome. A whole cottage industry of vendors grew around the program. The futility of the program became apparent about 20 years later when a $16,000 cap was placed on the cost of a rehabilitation program. And even that reform was subsequently ineffective, so vocational rehabilitation as a program was scrapped, and instead there have been various forms of training vouchers that pay for training, but no financial benefit to the worker directly. And the voucher program is largely unused. If someone were to add up the industry costs of vocational rehabilitation alone from its birth to its death, it would be a staggering amount of wasted money spent mostly to appease the federal wonks who thought they knew what they were doing. With this history in mind, the big question is, is the industry about to face another costly Nixon Commission redux? And in medical news, according to a new analysis of public database reported by Reuters Health, nearly three-quarters of the U.S. dermatologists received payments worth a collective $34 million from drug companies in 2014. In most cases, the payments were worth less than $50, but a few doctors were taking industry payments worth at least $93,000. Most dermatologists in the U.S., about 73% of them, received some form of payment from the drug industry. Those payments could take a number of forms, including gifts, grants, education, consulting, and food and beverages. The top 10% of doctors received at least $3,940, which represented 90% of the total paid to dermatologists. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. <music>